0: Our text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that it has been preserved throughout the ages, that it is perfect and without error and that we have the privilege of access to it in ways that our ancestors could only dream of. We ask that you would use your words to shape and transform us this morning, that we may be like you and like the Word, the Word made flesh, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. So as we begin the new year, it's exciting to consider all the new possibilities that are before us. Have you all made your New Year's resolutions? No? Well, I haven't either. And it isn't really the new year as we normally think, but it really is the new year. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And as I've mentioned in the past, we've been following, as a church, we've been following the church calendar as a way to structure our worship. And to build our order of service each week. That order of service that we follow each week, that's built on the church calendar. And on the lectionary, you can always check the front of your bulletin and you'll know right where we are on the church calendar as well as what the lectionary readings are for the week. Most of those readings are a part of our worship. So if you're not familiar with the church calendar, if it's something new to you, it can be helpful to know what its purpose is in the life of of a believer. First, let's talk about what it's not. Uh, The the church calendar, the purpose of the church calendar is not to bind the conscience of any Christian. Celebrating a holiday or a feast or a season is something that should be a blessing and not a burden. The holidays, feasts, and seasons are not commandments. These are not biblical authoritative commandments that Christians must follow. Um, As new covenant believers, we have one Holy Day, and that's the Lord's Day. That's today. In the Old Covenant, Scripture referred to this as the Sabbath. Um, And on it, on the Sabbath, which happened on Saturdays, everyone was to cease from all work and spend their day in rest and in worship. And not just them, but everybody on their farms and in their lands and their workers and their slaves, everybody was to rest and worship. And in the New Covenant, Scripture speaks of this as the Lord's Day. And it happens on Sundays now, on the eighth day of the week. Now I know that there are only seven days in the week, but since the resurrection of Christ, we're living in the new creation, the new creation order in which everything has been renewed. Everything has been and is being renewed. And this includes the Sabbath, which is, now that we're living in this new creation, is observed on the Lord's day, or on the day of the Lord. The day when Christ rose from the dead, but there are similar like the Sabbath on the Lord's day. We spend our days in worship as well as resting and for you moms giving rest to others. Um, the, the point is, though, is that we need to be faithful to our one holy day, faithful to obey God, to worship each week, faithful when we read in uh, Deuteronomy to observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Likewise, in the new covenant, the Lord's day is the day when the body of Christ gathers together to renew covenant with our God. We must be faithful in worship and rest each week. And we do this, not because we have to, but because we get to. We do this in joy. Knowing that the Lord's Day not only honors God, but is also a blessing to us and a blessing to the rest of the world. Okay, so the church calendar is not authoritative. You don't have to, you can ignore it all and you'll be perfectly fine. But we're not ignoring it, so let's talk about it. The the church calendar exists to help us live our lives in the rhythm of two major milestones in our history, in church history. Um, in redempt i should call it in redemptive history the first milestone begins today with advent with the advent of christ and all of his subsequent works on earth and the second milestone begins at pentecost with the coming of the holy spirit to the bride of christ his church so think about it like this the first half what we're just starting now uh, the first half of the calendar celebrates the works of christ on earth and the second half celebrates the work of the Holy Spirit on earth through the church. This was one of the reasons why it was so significant and providential that we were planted on a church on Pentecost of this year. We didn't necessarily aim to be planted on Pentecost. It just worked out that way by the providence of God. But it was significant because the whole season of Pentecost celebrates the work of the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through the bride of Christ, the church. So, we are now back at the beginning of the calendar and are set to begin a new year with Advent. Advent means coming. And during this four week season, we celebrate the various ways in which Christ comes to us. Advent leads to Christmas time, which is a 12 day period starting, not ending, starting on December 25th. And that 12 day period culminates in a celebration that we call. The epiphany of our Lord, or just epiphany for short. Epiphany marks a season in which we remember and celebrate Christ's revealing to the nations and the fact that he came to save his people from all nations, from the whole world. As, a, as an aside, the stouts always take epiphany to burn our Christmas tree because Jesus is the light of the world. Just a little tradition if you guys want to start it. So the Epiphany season then leads to the season of Lent, which follows our Lord into the desert for 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Lent is a time of reflecting on the magnitude, not of ourselves and of our own sin, but on Christ's forgiveness of sin. But it does allow us to to focus on stamping it out further in our own lives, both individually and corporately as a church. As the saying goes, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Lent then leads to Holy Week, which begins the culmination of all good news. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and finally a glorious Easter Sunday when we celebrate the death of death and the victory of Christ over the grave. Following Easter, we then enter Easter Tide or Easter Time, and that's a season which lasts until we reach again the glorious celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. And that begins again the second half of the church year. So, now that, um, now that we're beginning the new church year, I thought it would be helpful to spend at least one sermon discussing the theme of Advent and its relevance to us today. I mentioned earlier that Advent means coming. Um, and when we celebrate Advent, it's... Um, when we celebrate Advent... We oftentimes um, celebrate it um, in various ways, but of course it's most clearly seen, we most clearly see um, the coming of Jesus in the incarnation, that's the God taking on the flesh of man. Uh, Incarnation is a theological word that means the act of the Son of God coming down and becoming like us, taking on our human flesh. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 6, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just like the Nicene Creed we confessed this morning, uh, and even um, the song we sang, Oh Come Let Us Adore Him, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. This is the incarnation, and that's naturally the first thing that comes to our mind when we celebrate the advent or the coming of our Lord. We think about Him coming as a baby from His virgin mother Mary. That's a good thing to think about. But there are other ways in which his advent can be understood. One way he comes is in judgment. He comes in judgment. He comes in judgment not as a cross guy that just wants to make everybody miserable, but he comes in judgment to set things right for the oppressed. If you look at Psalm 98, in Psalm 98 we sing, Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills Sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So in this passage, all creation is groaning for the coming of Messiah. The sea is roaring, the world and everyone who who is living there. The rivers are clapping their hands. The hills are singing for joy because Messiah is coming. And when he does, he will set All things right. He will come and judge the world and all who dwell therein with righteousness and equity. We also believe that He will one day, at the end of all history, come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and finally cast down His final enemy, death itself. That's another way in which He comes. But what we're going to talk about today is a different thing. Advent is also a time to celebrate his coming as a glorious light unto the pagan nations who sat in dismal darkness. Darkness. It's not a coincidence that Advent begins in winter, when the days are shortest and the nights are longest. Christmas Day happens on the darkest day of the year, or at least very close to the darkest day of the year. We, like all of creation, wait and long for the coming of Christ as we see the world sitting in actual physical and spiritual darkness. And with the coming of Christ child on Christmas day, a day that corresponds almost exactly with the winter solstice, the days slowly begin to grow longer and the night slowly starts to be pushed out. The light begins to overcome the darkness, mirroring the spread of the gospel throughout the world. Like yeast through the lump of dough, And as the gospel goes forth into a dark world, the glory of the Lord drives out the darkness that is and was covering both the earth and the people. So this theme of light driving out darkness is the basis of our text in Isaiah 60. So let's go there now. We were looking at Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 5. Um, If you're turning there in your Bibles uh, while you're doing that, I, I will try and encapsulate the book of Isaiah into a pithy little uh, paragraph. It's very difficult to do, but um, as I have learned, as other people have, um, has been, have been teaching me, this seemed like a pretty good encapsulation of the book of Isaiah, and here it is. Through Jesus, the man of sorrow and king of kings, God built for himself a covenant people from all the nations, who together as the body of Christ have been promised the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to read that one more time. This is The Thrust of Isaiah, which is a very long, big, and complicated book. Through Jesus, the man of sorrows and king of kings, God built for himself a covenant people from all the nations who together as the body of Christ have been promised the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, let's look at the text. Verse 1 Verse one says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. First, uh, a little bit of background on where we're at here in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is, of course, prophesying to the Jews, um, and he's prophesying to the Jews who have been or had been exiled by the Babylonians, but have now been returned to their native homeland. Um, this uh, this was kind of where we were at in the book of Haggai a couple weeks ago. Um, but no surprise, they've been unfaithful. and um, oh, No surprise before, they had been unfaithful, and God caused the Babylonians to rise up, and carry them into captivity, away from their homes, as a judgment against their own unfaithfulness. God promised, if you're faithful to me, I'll bless you. If you're unfaithful to me, I will raise up nations around you, and they will punish you, they will discipline you. Um, So this prophecy is taking place at a similar time as in the book of Haggai. Now that they're back, now that they've been returned to the land, and there's all kinds of good things going on, but... But they're back, and, and they're charged with rebuilding the temple. But they're facing hostile neighbors. They're facing discouragement. And most of all, they're facing a temptation to drift back toward their recurring unfaithfulness. In fact, just prior to chapter 60, one, one chapter before, in verses 1 through two, one and 2 of chapter 59, Isaiah reprimands the Jews by reminding them that, well, God's ears are not dull, And that he can hear just fine, Isaiah tells them, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. So God has disciplined his people severely for their unfaithfulness. um, He's already disciplined them once, he's restored them to their homeland, and yet They're still being unfaithful to him. Nevertheless, in spite of this, at the end of chapter 59, um, the people of God are promised. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So in spite of their faithfulness, God is promising to continue in covenant With his people, even if it is a remnant, forever. Now a quick note. Um, We're talking about covenant people, his covenant people. Um, At the time Isaiah was written, it was spoken to the Jews as a covenant and ethnic people who were distinct from the rest of the world. The Jews were distinct. Um, They were really actually totally set apart as an ethnic group. Uh, And they were charged with something. They were to be ministers to the other nations because of this special favor God bestowed on them. Because they had been chosen, not because of anything they had done, but because of the kindness of God. Because they were chosen, they were to take that blessing that God gave them, and they were to take it to the world and bless the world with it. They were to point the heathen nations unto Yahweh, the one true God. Uh, In Genesis 12.3, God promises Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Of course, we know that's referring to Jesus, but that meant, that meant right then and there that all the families of the earth would, be, would begin to be blessed. Uh, likewise, in Psalm 67, uh, the author of Psalm 67 sings, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. The nation of Israel was supposed to Be like Joseph in Egypt, leading the nations in repentance to the blessings of Jehovah. They were supposed to be like Jonah to the people of Nineveh, warning of the terrible coming judgment and offering a way of escape. They were supposed to act like Abraham who, this is not the Bible, but who Josephus tells us, advised Pharaoh on how to build the pyramids. An accomplishment that is still shrouded in mystery today. Whether or not that actually happened or not, Josephus Um, uh, Josephus taught and believed that Abraham was the reason why Pharaoh was able to build the pyramids that we know today. But we know from our history, however, that the Jews rarely blessed any country that they encountered, and they were seldom faithful to the God who had made covenant with them. This unfaithfulness had profound effects when Messiah came. But the point is that there was a real division between Jew and Gentile. Prior to the coming of Christ, But since Christ has come, those ethnic walls to God's favor and to his covenant have been torn down. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek, but in Christ, both are one. So while the promises in Isaiah to God's covenant people were originally written to ethnic Jews, because Christ has come and has torn down the dividing wall, this passage covenantally belongs to us, the church, the new Israel. To those who by faith have clung to the perfect work of Christ, we are God's renewed covenant people, to whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So a brief word on Israel's unfaithfulness. Throughout the Old Testament and during the life of Christ, the Jews refused to believe and submit in faith. Even after countless opportunities of, in the words of Psalm 46, seen the glorious works of God. For example, this is just one of many examples, but while seeking to kill Jesus, not a good start, some literally saw him, Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and instead of doing what what we hope each of us would do, falling to their knees in humility and face faith, they refused to believe and simply expanded their hit list to include both Jesus and Lazarus, the guy he just raised from the dead. Remember this the next time a pagan tells you they would believe, if only God would show me a sign. No, they wouldn't. They will only believe when God takes the scales from their eyes, as God did with many of the Jews, certainly a remnant of them. But this unbelief on behalf, on behalf of the Jews as a covenant people happens again and again throughout the Old and the New Testaments, and it is that corporate, not individual, but corporate unbelief that's the basis of... For the culmination of judgment against Israel that Christ spoke about in Matthew 24 in Luke 21, which we just read this morning. The fulfillment of this judgment took place with the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. Jesus said before this generation passes away, these things will take place. Because of their unfaithfulness, the temple was destroyed and the inheritance of the Jews was given to all the nations who stream in from the east and the west and the north and the south by faith. Now, the Jews still have opportunity to access this inheritance, but they must now come to it the same way every other tribe, tongue, and nation comes, humbly in faith. So when each one of us here, without the privilege of seeing these glorious works with our own eyes, when we still believe, if we still believe, we are given by Christ a new blessing, a blessing that none of the Jews in the Old Covenant got. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have not seen. We have not seen these things, and yet we believe them. We are gathered here because we believe them. And so we have a special blessing from Christ. I hope that this little distinction helps kind of set the stage for understanding why I'm preaching that Isaiah 60 applies to us, the church, the new Israel. So verse 1, which we just read, is, is both an indicative, something to believe, And an imperative, something to do. We are to stand up in boldness and reflect the glory of the coming Messiah who is described as our light. Just as we belong to Christ, Christ belongs to us and has come as the risen light, come to scatter the darkness of the world. We are his hands and feet in this task and we reflect his glory. That means we're taking his light to the heathen nations. That's the imperative. That's what we must do. What we believe is that the glory of Yahweh has risen upon us. We must believe that. And in fact, the glory of Yahweh has risen upon the whole Gentile world through the advent of King Jesus. This is not a new idea in Isaiah. Isaiah has been prophesying that this would happen since the beginning of the book. Uh, In in chapter 9, it says the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali... By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This exact passage is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. With the coming of Christ comes the Gentiles' promised light. This theme of Christ shining on the world is picked up in other passages in the New Testament as well. If you look in Luke chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 78, we read, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, For anyone that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Finally, uh, there is the hope of the glorious final city of God described in Revelation. This is our goal. This is what we're working to as a church. Revelation 21, starting with verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it this reality has come in already but not yet fully with the advent of jesus we await in hope we await in hope and we work toward that heavenly city in which there is no need of sun or moon but is instead filled with the radiant glory of the lamb going on to verse 2 in Isaiah 60 it says for behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples but the lord god will ar- but the lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you in our culture culture that we're in now it's common to hear christians talk about how spiritually dark our times are we are told that the wickedness all around simply reveals that we're in the last days and we should only expect things to get worse The church is under siege, we're told, and only the return of Christ will set us free from this darkness that is overwhelming us. Satan is the ruler of the age, we are told, and we should expect him to continue his reign of chaos on earth. You know, in some ways, I I understand this this perspective. I understand at least why it exists. We do live in dark times. We daily witness new horrific acts of wickedness, evil, and, and tyranny. Coming from all those around us, but especially from those who rule over us. Evil is called good. Bitter is called sweet. And the wicked call those who perpetuate wickedness heroic. We hear of those who are persecuted for their faith even to the point of death. We have seen the cultural influence of our people dry up and scatter in the wind of cowardice and compromise. These are dark days in that respect. However... However, Christ has already come. Don't forget this. Christ has already come. While we are living in times of cultural upheaval, we are also living in the advent of King Jesus. We are living in the light of his coming. We live in the time many of our brothers and sisters are looking for right now. The time that those around us who feel like like life is... Or uh, like the world is going to end, we live in the time that many of those feel like is happening, but in all actuality, is already here. My my favorite verse in the Carol "Joy to the World" is the third verse: "No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found." Christ has come, and He is unraveling the curse. The curse is not growing. The curse is not overcoming us. Jesus is overcoming the world. Christian, the dark times are behind us. Christ has come to make his blessings flow wherever the cur- curse is found. That means everywhere. Amen. Those who were living before the time of Christ, they were the ones living in dark times. They lived in a land that was covered by the shadow of death, and it was upon them the light dawned. Even non Christians get the blessing. Think about this, even non-Christians, people who don't call upon the name of the Lord, even they get the blessing of living in an age of Christ's kingdom. We have the blessing to live now in the dawn of that light. And as a church, we no longer need to wait for Christ to come and scatter the darkness. He already has scattered it, and what is more, and this is the key, he has filled us, the church, his bride, with the Holy Spirit. And he's given us swords and torches and told us to go into all the world and courageously spread the light of the gospel to all nations and baptize them and teach all of them to follow his law. Prior to the coming of Messiah, Israel was a lonely outpost in a dark world ruled by Satan and his forces. We do not live in that same world and we need to stop believing that we do. Ours is a world that has been utterly transformed by the blessing of the gospel Jesus came to spread those blessings throughout the world, and we need to stop waiting around for him to come back and rescue us. We have work to do. We need to stop thinking that the church is being overwhelmed by forces of darkness who rule this world. Satan has been cast down. Jesus said he saw him fall like lightning. The strong man has been bound, and Jesus is plundering his house. We need to go out in faith knowing that even the gates of Hades cannot prevail against the onslaught of Christ's church and the gospel message that she carries. Moving on to verse 3. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Notice, this is a given. When Christ comes, the nations, the Gentiles, they will come. But what will they be coming to? He doesn't say go gather them. He says they'll come. But what are they coming to? They will be coming to the light of the city set on a hill, to the light of the body of Christ, the church. They'll be coming to us. I say the nation shall come to your light. Uh, It says that the nation shall come to your light. This is the reflected glory of the church going out into a dark world and bringing hope to the pagans, as well as shedding light on the terrible consequences of their sin, while offering the good news of the suffering Savior who came to set them free. So the nations will come. But they don't just come in general to a, a general spiritual thing. They actually come to us and they actually are looking for something different than what the world has to offer. That's why structuring your church to be like the world, trying to be uh, sensitive to, to making your, your, your church acceptable to the world is such a fool's errand. The world doesn't want a church that's like them. They want something fundamentally different. So the prophecy of verse 3 was in some ways already fulfilled when the Magi, or the wise men, came to worship Christ. Verse 3, um, verse three speaks of the Gentiles coming, and, and these wise men were kings. Uh, and, and it's interesting that these Gentiles, they didn't need to see with their own eyes the mighty works of God. They already believed them. And they were seeking this king by faith through following the light of a shining star. Think about that. Those Gentiles... They didn't have any of the privileges that the Jews did, and yet they believed anyways. Um, this prophecy of, of verse 3 is also being fulfilled every day since Christ has come. It says, the nation shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. That's happening every day um, that, that Christ has come. Uh, if, you, if you will, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn back to Isaiah uh, chapter 2. Very beginning of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah. There's a lot of um, calling out of sin in Isaiah. There's a lot of Repent, you know, calling the people to repentance. Um, But there is so much hope all throughout the book of Isaiah. And in verse two, uh, starting in verse two, we read, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Okay, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. In Isaiah 2, we are promised that when Messiah comes, the house of God would be established and it would be enormous, enormous. Not only would it be as big as a mountain, But the largest of all mountains, and that all nations would stream unto this mountain house, this house that is a mountain. And since we know that we are the house of God, we are his holy temple, and we worship each week on the heavenly Mount Zion, we should expect the nations to come unto us, and kings come to the glory that is in us, the glory of the risen Christ. The question is, when they come, will we be ready for them? Will we have the mindset that believes the gospel can actually transform the world. Uh, Verse 4 says, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Um, Just as a a reminder, we tried to sum up the book of Isaiah, um, and and we did so in a very um, underwhelming way, but we tried to, to sum it up as saying, Through Jesus, the man of sorrows and king of kings, God built for himself a covenant people from all the nations, who together as the body of Christ have been promised the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So in verse 4, we're told to lift up our eyes and look around at the coming together of the nations. Now, that phrase, lift up our eyes, what does that mean? Well, um, Calvin tells us that uh, he, he says he bids believers lift up their eyes on high, that is to lift our eyes above human thought or perspective. For so, lo- for so long as we fix them on the outward condition, we cannot obtain the fruit of these promises. He, um, then Calvin continues and he says that we must fully believe that the nations will come, not from one quarter only, but from every direction, that they may be united in one body. So when it says to lift up our eyes, that means stop looking at what's right in front of you. Okay? All, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be dark times in front of you. There's always going to be all kinds of problems that are going to be easy to distract you from the bigger picture. But as, as long as we only are looking at what we can see, we're not looking at what God is teaching us in faith. So lift up our eyes and see that they are all gathering together, all the nations of the world we are to believe, here's something to believe, we're to believe that all nations are streaming to Christ and to his church. They are streaming here because the salvation song of the Holy Spirit calls them unto himself. They come from every corner of the globe, from the womb, and from those who are carried on the hip, to sons who walk in strength. God is filling this church, this, this, this Catholic, big C church, with all the nations of the world. Finally, in verse 5, we read, Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Having looked around, we've lifted up our eyes, and having looked around at the glorious works of God, we can take heart. Though things may look bleak to our limited perspective. When we see with our eyes, or when we see with eyes that are truly above human thought, when we see with those eyes, That is to say, when we see with eyes of faith, we will truly see, and that sight will make us shine even brighter. We're already radiant, but when we lift up our eyes and we look with eyes of faith, that will make us shine um, even brighter. We could become radiant, and our hearts of faith will swell with joy. We are thrilled and exultant because the abundance of the sea is coming to us, and the wealth of the nations is streaming in. You might remember that we saw this in detail in our study through the book of Haggai. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2 of Haggai, starting with verse 6, God tells us, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The church can take heart, living in what we perceive to be dark times. The abundance of the sea, that is the Gentiles, will come to us eventually. It will come because God owns everything, and he is building a temple, not with stones and wood, but with people. He's building this temple with people, with living stones that do the work of pushing the darkness out and bringing more living stones into it, building it up until it becomes the biggest of all mountains, the mountains of the Lord. Jesus is the desire of all nations, and those nations will come. So God's promise to us through the the prophet Isaiah should cause us to ask ourselves some very important questions. Does this good news, this good news that we're hearing, does it cause us to humble ourselves, realizing that we have been given a gift that we could never earn? Or will we be like the Jews, witnesses to the glorious works of God, and yet, even seen with their eyes, still refusing to humble themselves and believe? Which one will we be? Will we humble ourselves and believe? Or will we build ourselves up with pride and think that we need to understand everything before we can believe it? Kids, all you kids, you kids who've been given faithful parents who believe God's word, will you believe it too? Or will you be like the Jews and reject God's gracious covenant gifts, turning instead to a life of debauchery or intellectual snobbery? Ah, What my parents believe, not me. I'm more enlightened than that. Those of you following Christ, will you be faithful to him to the end? Will you grow weary in doing what is good? Will you allow our culture's propaganda campaigns to demoralize you? That's what they want. That's why they they, they they do them, because they work. They want to demoralize you. Will you allow them? Will you believe the lies of our culture? Uh, will you believe the lies our, culture's, our culture spreads? The lies that Christianity is backwards, that it's hateful, racist, sexist, and that it's impotent? Or just private? Will you believe the lie that Christianity is just a private thing between you and your God. Don't bring that out into, uh, into the rest of the world. Will you believe that Christ has come and that everything has been changed because of this? Will you believe that he has come to make all things new? So as we close, here are some things to believe and some things to do. Number one, believe that the light has already come. Walk in the light as he is in the light and shun the deeds of darkness. Okay, Believe that the light has come. That's what you believe. Here's what you do. Walk in the light as he is in the light and shun the deeds of darkness. Have nothing to do with them. Remember that it was those prior to the first century, they were the ones sitting in darkness, not the church today. We now have the light and can take it to a waiting world who really are sitting in the, dar- in the darkness and living in the land of the shadow of death take this gospel to the world and expect the light to push the darkness out but take no part in their deeds of darkness as you have been set apart to shine as light number two believe that the king has already come and walk as ambassadors of a reigning king not an absent king jesus is physically in heaven sitting at the right hand of god and is reigning in heaven and on earth he rules the world Truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In his body, the church has been entrusted with the keys to this kingdom. Stop playing defense and go on the offensive. You get to be a part of spreading the news of the greatest story ever told the story of a conquering king who really did conquer. Do you remember, for those of you guys who've read um, The Lord of the Rings, do you remember at, at the, in the last book of The Lord of the Rings, uh, Aragon um, has returned and he's been crowned king, but not everybody knows that yet. So there's this little subplot as the, as the hobbits are, are traveling back to the Shire. They were quick to tell anyone who would listen that the king had returned and that he was back on the throne. Um, <clears throat> they, were, they were quick to tell everyone in Middle-earth this. Um, Because just as all of Middle Earth needed to hear the good news of the return of King Aragon, so our own Middle Earth needs us, the subjects or the the, uh, ambassadors of King Jesus, to spread the good news that Christ is seated on his throne, high and lifted up in glory. And that all people should willingly bow the knee to the King of Kings while there is still time. And finally, believe that the kingdom has come and is still coming. Walk in the victory of that kingdom. You are reigning with Jesus as kings and queens of his realm. And regardless of the chaos and the insanity of the heathens around you, regardless of the peoples plotting in vain against Messiah, Messiah, never forget that the kingdom must come and that God's will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. Worship God. Get married. Have babies. Love your children. Feed the hunger, hungry. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Forgive your spouse. Practice hospitality with with the people around you. Walk in newness of life because that is the kingdom and that is God's will on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.